0: Hope that you got your Sunday nap in. If you didn't, you're going to have a few minutes, maybe here in a few moments, to do that. I don't know. If you are a Kansas City fan, you're in a pretty good mood. How many Kansas City fans in here? Was it none. Everybody's in a bad mood. Okay, there's some here interesting games that are playing. First Samuel's are going to be tonight. A couple of things is I I thought I left glasses here on the front pew, and I got up here and they weren't there, so I had to go find some or else this sermon would have been really short. That'd have been tragic, wouldn't it? The other thing is, uh, Danny Pearson gifted me with a tie uh, not long ago, and he's been nagging me to wear it, and I thought it was blue and red, and I didn't have anything really that goes with it, and he said, no, it's black and red. He, if this is blue, just blame it on Danny, is what I'm going to say, but he gifted me with his tie, and I wanted to wear it, and, I, and, then, and then I was looking for him, and he wasn't here, and I thought I wasted the whole thing, but now he came in, and so I'm grateful for that. If you, if you want to give me a tie, I'll wear it sometime, okay? I just want you to know that. Get you, get you that. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and for this, for this story to be understood, um, you need to know where we are in Israelite history. Uh, there are some major segments or chapters of the history of scripture and way God deals with people, and it goes like this. Uh, first of all you got creation the first five chapters Adam and Eve and their offspring up until the flood Um, and the fall is there and the consequences of that and then there's a second creation after the flood he tries again and then and then there's chapter three you would call Abraham God calls one person and says you know what I've decided they're not going to all come to me he wanted everybody to come to him but Adam and Eve proved that not everybody's going to choose God. And then when he tries again, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth proved that not everybody's going to come to God. So he decided, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give people a choice. And Abraham's going to be the choice. If you want to be with me, come through Abraham. And that works for a while. And then, and then you get Egyptian slavery. They're taken down into Egypt. You know this. And they multiply. And they multiply and they multiply. And then he takes them to the promised land. We are not quite there yet. There's one little gap between getting in the promised land and the story that begins tonight, and that is the period of the judges. It's a ter- ter- terrible period. It would be the dark ages. It would be the time when, when people forgot God. They didn't pay any attention to him anymore, and it became a very dark period. So, I mean, A couple of things is that's, that's the period we're in when we get to 1 Samuel. We're still in the judges' period which there are a few bright lights, like the book of Ruth, there's still faithfulness in Israel, but very minimal. The most common refrain in the book of Judges is what? Does anybody remember? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You know, they they kept saying, well, you know, well, this seems right to me, or I feel like this is right, and so that became their right and wrong. They they dispensed with uh, God's God's uh, judgment of things. I want to give you the main verse of Judges real quick, and it's here first in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. After that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another gener- generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what the Lord had done for Israel. You know what led to all the chaos of the book of Judges? Nobody taught the Bible stories anymore. And when you don't tell them to your kids, your kids don't know them. And when your kids don't know them, they act like they don't know God. And do you know what it looks like when you act and you don't know God? The book of Judges. Be careful ever about appealing to the book of Judges for how something should go. That's going to come in handy in a couple of weeks. But I'm going to say don't, be careful about ever appealing to Judges for this is the way God wants it or, or this is how it should be because nothing in the book of Judges is how it should be. It's what happens when people no longer know the Lord or what God has done, and yet he tries to use the very basis of morality in people to try to get judges to serve him. So what happens that we learn in judges is this, and this is true, and you might say, well, that could never happen. The people of God could never get to a point where they don't know God. Listen, it's very easy. It takes one generation you believe that? One generation. You can have a family heritage of faithfulness for ten generations, but you take one generation that decides, I'm going to dispense with all that. I'm not going to teach my kids. I'm not going to teach them morality. They're not going to know the Lord or what the Lord has done for us. We're not going to give credit to God for what he's done in our lives. We're just going to live our lives just kind of like on our own, using our own judgment for right and wrong. One generation, and it's gone, and you've got the judges again. I don't know if you make a comparison between that and our country these days. I don't know. Some of the stuff that's come into our country and the things that we're entertaining, it's happening very fast. It's coming down the pike, right? And that's where Judges comes in. I'm going to do what's right, what I think is right, what I determine is right for me. And then at the end of the the book of Judges, we know that the tabernacle that's been maneuvering around with people is now stationed in one place called Shiloh. And let's see this next verse. I think it's a verse on here. And it goes like this, and the people of Dan set up a carved image, right, uh, for themselves and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his son were priests to the tribes of the Danites until the day of captivity of the land. They set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. What relationship is this false priest to Moses? He, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests. So you got Gershom, who was born, right? We've, we see him born in the book of Exodus. His son becomes a priest to false gods. Two generations beyond Moses. Moses. Moses takes them through the promised land. They see the amazing thing of the books of Exodus. His son sees that stuff too, at least a lot of it, at least some of it. He sees it, but his son is already becoming a priest to a false god in the land of Israel. It took one generation. That's it. And here he is being a false priest already, the grandson of the man who led him through all this stuff. It's just amazing how fast it is. And how fast it happens and yet those are the moments when God seems to work his magic and so God has always kind of let his plan get on thin ice like for instance I'm going to begin with you Abraham and make a huge nation of people and Abraham's got all these ideas in his mind and it takes him 25 years to have one kid a very unpromising start and you got periods of silence in this story. Between Judges and Exodus, there's 400 years of total silence. You're wondering, where is God in all this? Uh, and then, and then between, between the Testaments, between the end of the Old Testament, beginning of, of Jesus coming on the scene, another 400. God, God works mysteriously, and he always seems to let it come through on the very thinnest of threads. And that's what he's going to do now. In the book of 1 Samuel, it's time for something different to happen. You need a list of Cast of characters, and so here's the characters. And I, I don't mean to give you a cast of characters to say this is a story that's a fable. It's not. This is a true story. But I want to give you the cast of characters so you know it. Elkanah is the man of the story. He is called. Uh, he's a called a man from Ramah, although that's not the first time. If you'll notice the verse verse, there was a certain man of, well, man, there's a weird city there. I don't even want to say it. Somebody who won a Scrabble tournament decided the name of this town. And there it is right there. But later on in verse 19, it's called Ramah. They knew that nobody would ever say this, and so they shortened it. But he is from Ephraim, from the land of Ephraim, but he's not an Ephraimite. In First Chronicles, you read that he's a Levite who lives in the Ephraimite territory. And so here's Elkanah, a Levite living in Ephraim, but he comes traveling down to Shiloh to where the house of God is. It's the tabernacle, but it's a little more permanent now. And so he comes every year, and maybe he's doing his Levite duty, but he's certainly doing his family duty of leading his family in worship that's appropriate. Hannah is his first wife. I say first wife, he had two. I never introduced my wife as my first wife, but I've heard Gary James say that of Shirley a lot. And if he's going to have a second one, he's going to be at least 90, and she probably won't even know who he is, (laughs) right? That's weird. But anyway, so you got Hannah, the first wife. And for all, all that you can guess is because she couldn't give him children, she was barren, he took a second wife, Peninnah. And I can tell you there's plenty of people, you know this, in the Old Testament there's plenty of uh, multiple wives for, for men, but it never works out well. A lot of stories back there are just like you're looking at people and you're going, you know, really? If you'd have just had one wife, you'd avoided a lot of this stuff, right? That's what I say to people. I mean, there's, there's a theological reason why we say one man and one woman for life. And, and the Bible has plenty of evidence of people who didn't. I, I'm going to quote the Oak Ridge Boys. Trying to love two women is tearing me apart. That's kind of the whole idea of the Old Testament, right? So really, you should stick with one. And while there's examples, if you want a, a biblical example of multiple wives, there's plenty. But you want biblical examples of why you shouldn't do that? They're all over the place. That has nothing to do with anything. That has nothing to do with the cast of characters. There's Penna, the second wife. She had plenty of children. It doesn't say how many, but she had children. Hophni and Phineas are two priests whose names appear here, uh, but they don't really appear in ch- chapter two, but they are the bad people. Uh, they wear the black hats, they are the priests who are terrible. They're godless. They don't care about anything holy, but they go through the motions because they're in the lineage of the priest. And then you got Eli, the main priest, and he is the main judge. He's still, there are judges, and he's one. Those are the people, and there's one minor character in the story that we'll talk about later when he shows up, or at least it looks like a minor character. He's the most major character of all. These are the characters in these stories. Elkanah took his wife, his two wives, their children, every year Year after year after year, that's the way it describes it in the language of Scripture, every year took him to the, to the, to the temple or to the tabernacle uh, for a proper worship of God. Every single year. He considered it important, and he offered up a fo- fellowship offering there. He took his sacrifice, and they killed the sacrifice. And the way fellowship, worship, uh, fellowship offerings work, uh, worked, you offered your sin offering, you offered your burnt offering, that was all consumed there. But the fellowship offering was a celebration that my relationship with God is all right. You give God some of the animal, but some of the best of the animal, you get to eat right there in God's presence. And you share it with your family. And there's, there's Elkanah taking some of the food, giving it to Peninnah and her children. He takes some of it for himself, and he gives a double portion to Hannah. What you know is he loves Hannah. In fact, she's always going to be his number one girl, right? Now that's, that's a little lack of romantic when you have a number two girl there too, all right? But it, she is number one, and, and, and he desperately longs for her to feel the favor of God and of himself. And he says things like, he says things in good, he really means good by this, but really sometimes we say things. We shouldn't he and she says he says to her you know i really love you am i not better to you than 10 sons i mean i know what he's trying to say but he really shouldn't have said it that way you know but he's 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 trying his best to do all this and so he's he's really casting his favor upon her and it makes Peninna mad and so Peninna uh, attacks hannah all the time always bad talks her and makes fun of her and reminds her of her many children and hannah's none It got so bad that Hannah would be upset and she wouldn't eat that portion of food and she would would just be so disturbed by it that she couldn't hardly even worship. But this particular occasion in 1 Samuel chapter 1, she decides she's going to go and pray. She's going to go into the the, the place where prayer was common and where you did your conversing with God. And she goes and it says she poured out her soul to God. She was in great turmoil and she just spilled it out to God. God. and I love this the pouring out of your soul and, and she's doing this because she's taken her anxiety and her angst and all this she doesn't know what to do with it she can't make herself have children she's tried everything she knows how and she can't and she's desperate and so she comes before God into his presence and just lays it out there I mean, you can, t- you can see the liveliness. You can imagine how agitated the prayer looked if you're just watching. And in fact, Eli was watching. Eli happened to take notice of her, and she was mouthing words, but she wasn't saying any. This is the first time we ever see anybody silently praying in Scripture. Most time it's very out loud, but she's just she's there and you can just see her on her knees and she's just appealing to God. She's making a vow to God, in fact, we find out. But she is just pouring out her soul and Elijah, Eli, Eli sees it and thinks she's drunk. That's a weird thing. It's funny. His sons are drunk all the time and he never said a word to them. But somebody else acts that way, and I'm going to confront him. And so he comes up to her and says, woman, you shouldn't be drunk in the Lord's house. She says, I'm not drinking. I'm pouring out my soul. And he just, she shares with him. This vow she's making, not, not the details of the vow, but she just starts talking about how she is, her, her heart is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of grief, and she's laying it out, and is touched by it and says, I, I, I bless you. I ble- I, I, that's the only time we've ever seen a priest actually bless a person, and that's what he does in this chapter. It's interesting to me a couple of things about this. She is so consumed with what's going on inside her. She's not aware how she appears to people on the outside. And that's when you're in a zone where you don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm laying my heart out to God. And I can tell you this, this happens. And sometimes when you're in worship so much, you're just totally oblivious to anybody else. That can happen. And I can tell you, that grief works this way. I remember when Abby was in the hospital, I would go to Walmart even in the weeks after that, and I'd be looking at a can of green beans for 10 minutes at Walmart, and there may have been people walk by me, and I was totally oblivious to them. Be very careful how you judge people in those moments, because I can tell you, I can be at Walmart thinking of something in my inner mind, not looking at the outer world at all, and pass you by and not see you. And you might think, well, he's a Me, or it may be that I'm so in so in tune in myself that I'm not thinking about who's on the outside. Be careful how you judge people, even in worship, too. You might have brothers and sisters that raise their hands because you know what they're in tune with God at that moment and they are so in worship that way and they raise their hands like this. And you know, they got a verse for it now. You can interpret that verse any way you want to, they got a verse for it. How about this? Leave. Them alone. And don't judge them. There's something going on right there. And it's interesting to me how often in Scripture, when someone is in tune with God, it's interpreted as drunkenness. Isn't that weird? Don't you think that's weird? I want you to think in Acts chapter 2. What did they think? The disciples were full of the Spirit. And what did the people on the outside think? They're drunk. And here's here's this woman who's, who's... she is communing with God in the innermost parts of her soul. And guess what Eli thinks? She's drunk. And then when Paul says, I want you to be filled with the Spirit, I don't want you to be drunk on wine. It's interesting, isn't it? There's, there's some, this has got to be weird. I, I don't know how to think this. But there's, there's some comparisons between someone who is intoxicated and someone who is Spirit-filled. I hate to say that out loud on a Sunday morning at a Church of Christ building. It's just weird how that happens, isn't it? And I notice that when some people are addicted to things, one of the things that can help them get off the addiction is a very charismatic form of Christian faith, something that's in tune with them. John 3.16 is one program like this, and it's very charismatic, and it almost has to be in order to replace what is so consumed their lives that's negative, it becomes more charismatic on this side. You know, I don't know what to think about that. I don't know how to navigate all that stuff. I just know it's a fascinating thing to take notice and be careful with. The vow comes. She says, Lord, if you'll see my affliction, and I love this word, if you will remember me and give me a son, I'll give him back. And she makes the vow and then Eli gives the blessing and the most amazing thing is she walks out of there with tremendous peace her face changes she goes and she eats and there's this light sense of joy the prayer has not been answered y'all it's not the prayer that gave her it's, it's not the answer to the prayer that gave her peace it's the prayer itself that gave her peace. She was able to unload this and just pour out her soul and she wasn't caring about what anybody else looked. I'm just gonna pour out my soul and lay it all on the line to God and I'm gonna give it over to him and she hasn't been answered yet. She's not suddenly pregnant in a miraculous way. None of that but because she knows she's heard and because she's laid it out to God she walks away with a peace. I think in the Christian life we need to express this. Listen, I appreciate it when so many of you say I pray for you regularly and I pray for you too. And I think we need to tell people we're praying for them. Do you know what the most powerful thing about praying for somebody else is? It's not telling them that you did. The most powerful thing is that you prayed to God with their name in it, whether they know it or not. And it makes a difference in their life. And for her, it made all the difference knowing that God heard, and she poured out her heart, and she lightened at that very prayer, even before it was answered. But it was answered, wasn't it? She went home, and by the way, this, this, is a, this is a prayer that requires human effort. I'm just going to put it that way. They go home, and they continue marital relations. So this is not a miraculous birth. They did their part, and God did his. It says that they went home, Elkanah knew his wife, his wife Hannah, and she, the Lord, remembered her. I've used that line in prayers lately uh, for people maybe who, who really long to have children. I'm saying, God, remember them. I love that phrase, remember them. It's not that they've been forgotten. Don't use it the same way. It's not the same remember that we're thinking of. This is a remember like God was ready to act now. I, I think this is best illustrated in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. God looks upon and hears the Israelite cry in slavery in Egypt, and it says, The Lord remembered his covenant. Had he forgotten? No, he hasn't forgotten. But for 400 years, he just watched. He didn't intervene. He just watched. But now it was time to kick into gear and put the jumper cables back on the plan of God and let's start it up again. Let's get something going. And that's what he tells Moses in Exodus chapter 6. He says the same thing. The Lord remembered the covenant. And here it says he remembered Hannah. She has a child. She names him Samuel, heard of the Lord. So uh, a year or two goes by. I don't know how it doesn't say the time, but a year goes by. It's time for Elkanah to take the family back, but she's pregnant now. And she says, I'm not going with you this year. I'm going to wait until this child is age of weaning, two to three years. In there. I'm going to wait till he's two or three years old, and then I'm going to go down and offer my sacrifices, and I'm going to give this child to the Lord. Now, that sounds really noble, but I'm wondering, you know what? If you're going to give your child to Valley View, does that mean the preacher and the secretary have to raise it? I mean, that's what I'm wondering. Who's going to actually do this stuff, right? Who's going to actually correct this child? I don't know all those details it doesn't say, but what it does say is that she then went down, and your version may say a three-year-old cap I think it was three-year-old bulls that they took and made those sacrifices. All the sacrifices that were necessary as normal, but also a sacrifice for the Nazarite vow. Because she made a vow, and you're supposed to offer a peace offering, a thank offering as a result of that. And she makes the sacrifice, and she leaves Samuel there. And as with everything it seems like in Scripture, when something great happens, there's a song that goes with it. And the song is the interpretation for the whole book. And so 1 Samuel chapter 2, you have the song. And there's just two or three things to notice about that. While she had prayed silently, she praises out loud. She just prayed to God quietly, but when she praises, she praises out loud, and people hear it. She gave the credit to God, who is the divine reverser. The person who had many children, uh, they amount to nothing, but the one who was barren now has a child that makes everything different. And then she knows at the end of the song that this child is about the anointed. God is going to use this child in a big way. So there's the story. It's simple, it's beautiful, it's heart-touching when you read the story and you appreciate it and you put yourself in that role. But what is the point of the story? Right now, Israel is in a minority status. You know, those people who really know the will of God aren't hardly around. There's very few of them. You've got Eli serving as a faithful priest here. But not many people go down and worship. Most of the people are worshiping at home their own way. They're doing their own thing. They're doing what they think is right. But there are a few people. But you know what happens? You know what happens when we decide to relegate faith to a private part of your life? Don't put faith in public. Let's not make your faith public. Let's keep your faith private. You know what that leads to? Well, like abortion. Abortion discussion. It's okay for you to think whatever you want in private. But in public, we got to go by the science. And when God's people allow the faith to be relegated to private world and never touch the public world, you get the Book of Judges, a privatized. You can think whatever you want, and if you want to believe that, go ahead and practice your worship in houses of worship quietly on Sunday, but leave the rest of the world alone. But what can you do when you want to be the people of God and make influence on the world, right? How can you make a difference? How can you make your faith make a difference? And the story says it's in something small. It's in going to worship every week. This family went year after year after year. And you know what else? The preacher was terrible. Hoffney and Phineas were terrible. But it doesn't matter what the preacher's like, and it doesn't even matter whether you like the teacher of your Bible class or not. You go. You get your family. You go to the trouble, and you go year after year, or in our case, week after week after week, get yourself to church. You want to change the world, and you want to change the future, get your family to church. That's what he says. And by the way, can I tell you, I mean... I, I hear this. I've been a preacher a long time, and I hear it all, right? Preacher's no good. I don't hear that so much because they won't tell me that. But, but they might say it about church, right? Bible classes aren't that great. The fellow worshipers don't treat me right sometimes. There's people there that I don't. Right, right. Penina has been mistreating Hannah for years. She's been mistreating her right there at church. She's mistreating her, and she still goes. Don't let someone else and their annoyance with you and their personality difference with you become an excuse for not going week after week after week. This is about you and your God. It's not about all this other stuff. You want to change the world? Take your family to church. And what's really interesting about Hannah to me is I don't know how long she went with this heaviness of heart. How long did she go making these kinds of prayers? He decided she was going to have children, had another wife, had several children. We're talking a a, a number of years, and she had this dream, and she had this thought, I'm going to be faithful, and God's going to bless me, and I'm going to have a big family, and I'm going to change the world. And yet year after year, her dream was dashed by the very God who she was trying to glorify. And he wasn't answering her prayer, and yet she still went to church. Listen, your life's not going to go the way you want it to, and there's some bad stuff that's going to happen, and there's some things that you wish would happen that won't, and you're going to be mistreated and unfairly dealt a hand in this life go to church anyway what's the alternative take the broken heart take the heavy heart don't let it be something that kills your faith let it be a trial that refines it I'm not telling you this is a prototype that if you just pray silently, pour out your heart to God in the middle of church where the preacher can see you and think you're drunk, that it's going to turn out this way. Can you still worship and can you still walk with God even when your dreams are forced to change by the very God you're trying to glorify? She did. And year after year after year, her prayer was said, no, 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 and she still came. The greatest lesson to me of this chapter is have a bigger view of what your children are than you have right now. Genesis eighteen nineteen, God said this to Moses. Uh, He said this to Abraham. I have chosen him. Talking about Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he's promised him. How is the promise of Abraham going to eventually cover the entire earth and be so many that it numbers more than the stars in the sky? Do you know how it's going to happen? When Abraham raises his children in the Lord, and their children raise their children in the Lord, and they raise their children in the Lord, and you become a believer, and you live your life, and you raise your children in the Lord, and that's how God designed it. That's how God set this up. And the best thing that you can do for a world you haven't even seen yet, and you want to say, how are we going to fix this world? I'll tell you how we'll fix this world. We're going to send our little lights out into the future that are going to reach beyond us, and they're going to make a difference in this world. And don't be afraid of the world. Don't be afraid of the world and so afraid of it that we hide away from it. And Because if we hide away from it, they won't even see it in us so that they'll be able to know what to do when they get to that future. Right now, I'm meeting in another classroom over there of people learning the great stories. We're making sure that Judges doesn't have our watch. We're making sure Judges doesn't repeat itself on our watch at Valley View. We're on the top of the hill with this light, and we've got these little lights that we've created, and we're raising them to send them forth in a world we will never see. And some of the reasons and the things that we do are not for you, you old heads, right? It's not for you. It's to have those kids be faithful that we can send them on to a future. We build a building that largely you may never know. We may engage in things that we don't know. It just doesn't make any difference to me. It's not going to affect my life. The worst people in Scripture are those who think as long as my life's okay, I don't care about anybody else. Hezekiah, given 15 extra years, and he's, he messed it all up. And God came to him and said, because of what you did, this nation's going to be a mess. But I'll let you die in peace. And Hezekiah says, great, at least I'll die in peace. That's really all you care about? This church cares about us being faithful today. We also care about our children being faithful days, hence. We care about that. What I love about her is that she, she, she sings this song, and it's the first time the word, the anointed, ever shows up. It's in verse 10. And what she knows is this child that she has, this child that she has is going to play a role in changing the dark ages. It's a little light that is given. she's given and she takes it to, to the temple of God and it becomes a bigger light. And then that Samuel. That Samuel then becomes the one who finds David, the man after God's own heart, who, who becomes the king of God. And then his offspring becomes the king who becomes Jesus. This child has a role, and it's the greatest honor she can think of. It's not your kids are not just for you. Your kids are lent to you for a time to hand back to God so that they can change the world. We need to have a bigger view of our kids than what we have. I'm guilty of this, not thinking bigger. And so she says in verse 11, I'm your servant, I'm your servant, I'm a servant. Three times, servant. And when I have my child, I'm going to lend him to the Lord. And we all need to be doing that. We all need to be preparing to give our kids back to the Lord and let them be a light that shines in this world and makes a difference. So what does that mean? It means we pray for our children. It means we go to worship all our lives, week after week after week, even after our children leave home. And part of the reason you need to go to church It's for your children. I knew a guy. He's at Center Hill, and we talk about this all the time. His kids graduated, got married. He lost a little motivation to go to church because for so many years, part of the reason is, got to get my brood there. Got to get my brood there. I want to make sure they're there. And now he doesn't need to take care of his brood, right? Suddenly your motivation to go is lacking a little bit. But you know know what? You grandparents... Your grandkids need to see you coming to church day, week, week, week after week. They need to see that, that it's a family heritage. It's something we value. It's for ourselves, but it's also for our kids. Create the heritage. If you don't have one, if you didn't inherit one, make one. Start one. If you received one, honor it. We stay in marriages maybe that, were less, that are less than ideal, partly for our children, and while that's bad talk in our culture, can I tell you what? It's legit. If there are seasons of life, you can't stand the old boys, she can't stand you, and you just stay together for your kids, God bless you. And I pray that God will restore that love in due time. But if it's just for the kids, it's legit. We impact the future that we will not be part of through our kids. We have a say in how the future goes by how we raise our kids. We send faith forward through our kids, and we learn about and address our own selfishness. I learned partly, I'm still not done, but I learned partly my selfishness when I got married. Anybody else want to say amen to that, really? Did you learn when you got married just how selfish you were? And you thought, well, that's kind of been refined. But then you have children and you realize, man, I value that three 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 o'clock sleeping in the morning. And Michael never has it anymore. It's the greatest badge of his fatherhood, though. And he learns to melt away that selfishness a little by little through your kids. When God needs to change the world, church, he needs to accomplish something great. He, if he wants to bring about his will, he does it through normal people living out faith, and he does it through their children. I know how this world is, and it almost looks hopeless. When you look out there and see the radical changes that are overtaken, you're like, I don't want to raise my kids in this world. Yeah, you do. It's your way of changing the world. That's how God's always done it. How many times did God start something new through a child? How many times we just did the Christmas story? How did Jesus come as, as a child? How did it start with Isaac as a child? It was, it was just narrow escape so many times, and through a child. And the Old Testament Christmas story is Samuel. Through a child, he starts to change, and it's through our children we're going to change the world. First Samuel lets us know, if you live in dark ages and you live in a world that's less than it should be, Let's be the people we should be. Let's raise our kids to be what they should be and let them help us change the entire world. Only, though, if we're prayerful people, week after week after week, modeling the kind of life it's going to take. May we, from this little church on the hill, change the entire world in the way we live and the way those infants that you're holding right now are raised and how those kids two halls over how they're going to go out in the world and make a difference and may god help us to dispel the darkness with the light of the world i hope you're participating in that and i hope that you believe it because it's the truth and it's how we're going to make a difference to be the church on the hill by raising our kids and sending forth into a world we'll never see. But we got to do something today for that to happen then. If there's anything we can do for you spiritually, make it known as we stand and sing the invitation song.